Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you mind giving a, a quick bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah. Um, so I'm a, a writer and a culture commentator, I, I guess. Uh, I also host a podcast called After the Orgy um, with my friend Ann Manov, who's a lawyer. Um, and yeah, I, I mostly write about... Um, the cultural shifts between 2008 and 2015. Um, so all the all the ways things were changing with like uh, with a lens really on the internet and how the in- internet started impacting us in a different way than it had before. Gotcha. I I really I, I love that angle. I I think it's super important. I, how did you first notice that you know this shift was important and that you know people weren't like addressing it very much people weren't talking about it or kind of writing on the subject yeah um well so i kind of noticed it when it was happening because i've always been very online um i haven't necessarily been like embedded in you know every single subculture or niche but like i have i i have like been uh you know i'm a true digital native like i've been using the internet since i was like five or six um you know at, at most, like the oldest there was was like seven. Um, so I, I have like a memory of things shifting. Um, but the one thing that really got me writing about this is, you know, I noticed like this cottage industry of people trying to explain wokeness emerge. Um, you know, it usually comes from the center uh, or, or conservative circles. And it's people who basically like have the argument that like really, I would say like my parents and my parents' parents, you know, generation would have, which is like, we sent you to that college and you came back corrupted. And <laughs> having gone to like, you know, I, I went to, um, I, I actually had two college experiences. I, I started off at like a big, uh, you know, kind of like low tier state school where like they accepted like 99% of people. And then I went to film school um, after a year or two of that. So I kind of saw both happen and it felt more like um, it wasn't professors indoctrinating the students, but rather it was students who were picking up these like mimetic ideas online and then asking for changes in classrooms. So it, it felt like, you know, uh, there's all these there's all these people trying to work out what happened and like why language has changed and why expectations around things like gender have changed um, and that they pinpoint at pinpoint universities and I was like that's there's no way that that does not feel right um and it's it's sometimes a confusing uh you know claim to stake uh for like a couple of reasons one uh people often assume that I am maybe like passing judgment on certain things that I'm not like my my mission is to say this is how I think this information spread um 
versus like whether or not I think it's right or moral or whatever. Like I don't, you know, my own opinions are totally irrelevant to the work I do. I'm more interested in like, how did this move so fast? Um, and then the other thing is when I say like information spread online, my, I, I can point it really to Tumblr as the vehicle of transmission. I'm not saying that Tumblr invented these ideas. Um, I think it's like quite obviously a lot of the ideas that are now uh, you know, in common parlance did come from academia, but they didn't spread through academia. And it's like a hair difference. And that, that small difference is sometimes like confusing for people to understand what exactly it is I'm arguing. Okay. That's, that's super, super interesting. And that definitely does match my experience. I went to college. I started in, um, let's see, 2012 at UNC Chapel Hill. And, um, that is a really interesting point that it it's actually student driven and then there's like a feedback loop between the professors and the students and um this keeps kind of accelerating i so so you you think tumblr is is kind of the the beginning of of how kind of the new campus leftism uh emerged yeah definitely um you know and that's not to say uh that there was never leftist groups who already had these ideas but they were they were small and they didn't just randomly get popular, right? Like that, like that's sort of like the, the mystery everyone seems to be trying to solve. Um, you know, I'll, I, I interview a lot of people like in uh, you know, like hundreds of people uh, and it, it might even be eclipsing that at this point. Um, I'm talking to people every single day, um, hearing about their online experiences. And like most people first interface with um, I, you know, a lot of these ideas online. Um, and I'll say this and, and uh, you know, some pushback I'll get is like, well, what about Occupy Wall Street? You know, what about these leftist groups that were like very visible in the nineties? And it's like, sure, of, of course, like, again, like, you know, Tumblr didn't invent this stuff that's absurd, but like, why did they stay niche until, you know, a, around 2008? You know, why was that the, the moment was it was it the you know economic crisis or was it that these ideas suddenly were, were able to get into the hands of instead of simply 18 and 19 year olds but you know 15 and 16 year olds who do a much better job at driving trends than any other demographic in america gotcha so it's, it sounds like you, you kind of need you know these eyes were ideas were percolating, but you, you need some kind of distribution mechanism to get them to people. And Tumblr was kind of that avenue that worked really well. Yeah, gotcha. Exactly. Is, is there anything mechanically about Tumblr that made it, I guess, particularly? I mean, I'm trying to remember even what was around social network wise in 2008, and it's difficult for me to grok. But I guess, yeah, was there anything special about Tumblr that made it made it the place? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, first of all, like Tumblr is very difficult to filter. So, or it, you know, especially it, it was at first and there was a lot of cross pollination. So what people would do is like, they would um, hide things under the cut. So like you could, so to hide something under the cut means like you could put like a page break. So you could put some intro text and then put stuff, you know, something that you don't want easily visible. Um, hidden so it won't show up on the feed um, and then so people who didn't want to see the content there you could put a content warning or a trigger warning so 
And that was really the main way you could filter things is by having the, the creator hide it if they felt like it would be contentious or offensive or triggering. Um, but otherwise, like you could follow tags much later on, um, but there was, you know, whoever you followed, that was and whatever they reblogged, which is similar to retweeting if people are not familiar with Tumblr, but maybe are familiar with Twitter, it would just show up on your feed. And then a lot of new genres um, started popping up because of this. And the, the really famous one is Super Hulock, um, which is a, you know, it's, it's a crossover, a, a fan-driven crossover of three really popular television shows at the time, um, particularly very popular on Tumblr, which Doctor Who, Supernatural, and Sherlock. Um, and that, you know, you know, people have actually studied this academically and done like, like huge research projects where they've like interviewed, you know, um, thousands of people. Uh, like, how did this happen? And it happened because of uh, the cross-pollination due to the, the UI on, uh, on Tumblr. And it's, it, you kind of see it happen on Twitter too. Um, I actually published an article today, like kind of uh, probing at the question, like why is it that we assume incels are all right-wing? When really like, that doesn't make sense, right? Like right. just because you're an involuntary celibate doesn't mean that you're necessarily anywhere on the right-wing spectrum. You, like you could be a, you know, involuntary celibate uh, Marxist, but you, you never really hear that narrative. And it, it's it's for two two reasons. It's one, like the very porous boundaries that happen when you have poor filtering mechanisms. Um, and, you know, like on Twitter, you can only really filter something through like muting and blocking, but those are in a, you know, not as effective as they could be. Um, and then two, the second really important part of this is how it's reported on by the media. Got it. Um, yeah. And, and, and how, so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna, I was gonna say like, so this, the second piece of this, this story is around the same time, um, you know, everything became digital and they started slashing budgets at big publications, uh, or really all publications. And, you know, people still wanted to be writers. It still had a lot of cultural cachet. Um, and because, but because there was less money to fund reporting, uh, you know, a couple of things happened. Like one, you see the rise of the journalist as a personality in a way that it didn't exist before. Like, Sure, there was famous journalists who became cultural icons in their own right, but it was it was much more rare. You know, like here there was like a path, and you did it through social media, and it it, it almost overtook the actual writing. And then the other thing that happens is like these people become content mills, um, and they're they need to generate a lot of content. Um, it needs to generate a certain amount of clicks. Uh, some at some publications they would pay you more if you got a certain amount of comments. Um, and it was really traffic driven. So you're, you're not getting paid and you need to you know, create clickbait um, and you only have a finite amount of time to research. So people would go on social media, specifically Tumblr and Reddit and scrape for stories. And what's really interesting is this actually, this was actually documented that this was happening and that this was creating a narrative, they were imposing narrative layers on communities that had not existed but through the amplification cycle, so let's say like BuzzFeed posts something, and then it gets picked up by, um, let's say the Washington Post, and then it, it moves a next layer up, which is uh, like CNN. 
or, or MSNBC. And then it draws more attention to a community that might have been like really small. And it creates a new community that is divorced from the original community that had uh, this narrative layer imposed on it. So it's kind of like a game of tele telephone. And there's tons of examples of this. Um, the one that was documented in a really interesting way was um, homies, which are people who are kind of like fans of uh, the Aurora, Colorado shooter. Uh, I believe it happened in 2012. Um, and basically what happened was a news cycle invented that there was these teen girls who were like really into this guy. Um, but really it was a joke that was construed as a truth, but because it was reported on, it became real. Um, and then there, there's just like, you know, dozens of examples of this happening. Um, another really interesting one that I actually uh, wrote about in college was uh, the, the fandom or, you know, the purported fandom around the Boston Marathon bombers. That was another thing that was willed into existence by journalists. Wow, that 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 is super, super interesting. I've never actually thought about that it like that. I, I knew uh, journalists, especially, you know, post 2008 were really driven towards like the you know I, I i always think of like gawker as as the quintessential example and, and reading about the hulk hogan uh thing and peter thiel getting outed as as you know well these people they're actually in this like content mill it's actually super brutal they're trying to produce content as fast as they can um and, and get clicks to to just barely scrape by it's super competitive and i never thought that okay like they're actually they, they have to get ideas from somewhere where they source where are they sourcing the ideas sourcing them from tumblr and that you you can actually it feeds up the chain in the discourse to the washington post and the new york times and actually mainstream uh publications that that's that's really fascinating but it makes a lot of sense yeah and you know it's it's where you kind of get like the dissonance between like um oh this isn't real and then suddenly it is real <laughs> uh, or like oh this is misrepresented and then but then like suddenly it's actually looking like maybe it, it wasn't. Um, I was talking today and I, I, I won't go into too much detail about this because this is a place where I don't really know the history super well. But another like really famous example of this is the alt-right, which I, you know, I, was, I was talking to someone who has done you know, like some similar research that I do into Tumblr about newer right wing movements. And, and basically their point was like, like it's, it's both, both claims are true that there is no alt-right that it's an invention and that it's, uh, you know, it became real. Um, and you, you're, so we're constantly living in like these two, two worlds where it's like what really happened, how it's being reported on, you know, the people who are identifying with the reporting. And it's like a really, it's very, it's really confusing in a way because it, you know, everyone wants to think their version, their version of the truth is real. And, everyone's version of the truth is, is real in a sense. Wow. Yeah, that, man, that's super, super fascinating. And, and it seems like there's this, this pressure on ideas where there's this like this fairly efficient market of ideas and you've got this evolutionary pressure for things that generate more attention. And so it's like that feedback cycle. So, you know, you, uh, journalists actually, they come upon something that does generate attention, like fans of the Aurora, Colorado shooting. You know, I can definitely understand why people would, you know, at least click on that, right? You know, like what the heck's going on here? And then that that memes it into existence in some way. That's very fascinating. Is there's do you get the sense that there's something special about the internet and how it drives like just our our mimetic fascinations? It can kind of supercharge how we 
uh, discover who to copy in some sense? Yeah, I mean, I think like what is is so obvious about the internet, but I don't think has like fully been articulated um, are like these two things. Like one, the internet's like really global. Like there is no, like the, especially like the Anglophone internet is there, like one sort of ocean. It's one thing. Right? Like there's no, yeah, there's no like UK or Australia um, or the United States. It's all kind of like the same geographic space. Um, and then also like we're constantly like immersed in it, like at all times. And it's like, I think there's some sort of awareness of this, but I don't think we, the ramifications of this like constant immersion has really been uh, like appreciated. Um, you know, I, I, was talk, I was talking to another friend about how like, it's, it's not simply that we're always sort of idly checking our phones, but like, you know, how often is it that you go outside and you're not, you know, the the dead time between like your apartment door to the to the subway or, or your car or whatever isn't occupied with like Spotify, right? So what <laughs> you know what happens in your or like there's there's so many different examples of this. So you might not like literally always be on social media, but you are literally always immersed in that world, or at least you know a non-trivial percentage of the population is, and. Um, it's kind of like when you learn a, a new language, like the best way to learn a foreign language is to be constantly immersed in it. You might not ever reach like perfect fluency, but you will, you know, at some point, regardless of how old you are, you do, you know, you, you can navigate the world and it does kind of change the way you see the world. And I think the internet's the same way. Like it's just, there's, it is never turned off. You're never really free from it. That is that's such a good that's such a good point. I and I know I noticed this this weekend. I was in rural eastern North Carolina where I'm from. I was at a kind of community event um, at a gym, and no one was on their phones the entire four to six hour period. And it, it was just just such a there's a much lower level of neuroticism that I feel living in a big metro pool all the time where people are bombarded. Like people are just like so much less online than a lot of people are here. And it was just, it was a very bizarre experience. Uh, do you think, you know, I, I guess th there's positive things with the internet. You know, we have access to all this, um, you know, great information, you know, better content than we've ever had access to, but there's all these negative effects, which we really haven't, it seems like we factored in all net. Do you think it's kind of a positive thing? Um, you know, like, yes and no, I, I constantly waffle on this. Like, I, I, I did have a, a, like a short period of time where like, I kind of, it, it wasn't conscious, but I like took a, a break from the internet. And like, I look back on it. And I, I was much, I mean, so the thing, the thing about this is like, it, it was a, a brief, it was a brief moment in my life where like, I knew my neighbors, I, I was like, really embedded in the community. And like, even if I was online a lot, like it was kind of in a different way. Like I, it was more sort of, my concerns were more like tied up um, in my immediate environment. Uh, and I think for a lot of people that's kind of lost. And, you know, I, I'm on the fence about whether or not like, you know, like localism being digitized is a net positive or a net negative. And like, what I mean by that is like, you know, like I think of like a church group or something like for every church group in America, there's probably like a corresponding Facebook group. And like, 
you know, a lot of the conversations or even like some of the drama probably happens in that Facebook group as opposed to in real life. Is that better? Like, does that make it more accessible, less accessible? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the thing is like, if it's used as a tool, um, that's one thing, but if it's like abstracting you from wherever you physically are, then it's more of a problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. That, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Um, are there any, you know, in, in doing all this research, are, are there any personal habits you've picked up, you know, like, uh, are there, are, are there any, you know, do you limit like time on certain applications or do you think it's just like, just do kind of what you want to do? I've gotten increasingly worse. I mean, it's like, it's like that. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I, uh, I now have like in, even more like keen awareness of how fast these things move. And I feel compelled to always keep up because like, they're not very well documented and like everything, even unimportant things feel important, you know, in aggregate. And now I'm just online so much. And like, I, sometimes I feel like, uh, like I'm overdosing on it. And I, I often when I'm like, man, like, can I take a break? Should I take a break? Like, and I mean, the answer is of course, yes, I need to limit my time online and, uh, (laughs) you know, go outside a little bit more, but it's, it's hard, it's hard not to, especially when you, you know, when you're researching this stuff and you don't really want to miss anything. And it seems to be like an infinite amount of stuff to sink your teeth into. Absolutely. It's it's just, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. Um, I'm curious, you've written a lot about relationships. Uh, Do you think, has the internet changed the way we approach relationships in in fundamental ways? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it it definitely has. I mean, for, and there's so many ways too. Like I, I won't go into like the whole like Tinder conversation because I feel like it's been done to death and other people can say it much better than I I can. But like two, um, two ways that I think are really significant and maybe like less explored are one, like you're like kind of always talking to people, like even passively. And I don't think that's healthy. Like, even if you really like care for or love a person, I think like you need that boundary of like, this is my time with you and like this is my time to myself and this is my time in, in person or with someone else um and there's also a weird knock-on effects like depending on like where that sort of like ambient always talking to someone is taking place like if it's in the, the talking stages of a romantic relationship or a friend and then the other thing is like this phenomenon of like micro rejection which is like we've kind of eroded all of the boundaries or like signals of um, you know, that someone is a close friend. Um, and like now it's, you know, it, this doesn't apply to everyone, but for like a lot of people and it's like certainly a, like a supported or like encouraged behavior where it's like you might share a secret with someone and like usually if someone's sharing a secret or like some kind of intimate information, it should be a signifier that you've, you know, cro- you've you crossed some kind of threshold in the relationship this person's now a close friend sharing the secret is meaningful. Um, and now, I mean, it's sometimes that's true, but often it's, it's not. And so when, you know, to get back to the idea of like micro rejection, when someone who last week told you about a childhood trauma, then ghosts you and you never hear from them again, it's, you get whiplash because they, you know, in any other situation, like maybe it, you know, maybe like they would have just like 
evaporated from your life and it's like a very normal thing that doesn't really matter it ha you know people come and go but because they've sort of shared this this heavy info or you maybe you have been ambiently talking to them all day it's very confusing because like on one hand you recognize like maybe this person wasn't a close friend but we had all this this interaction but it was only over text so in and it's it's like i think it confuses people and we don't really have a language to talk about it because i think on some level we recognize a friendship cannot alone be made up of text or we have some awareness that uh, being vulnerable no longer has the emotional weight that it used to but there's still something to like constantly cycling through people in this way that's uh that, that's very interesting. I I hadn't thought about that, but it, it does seem, yeah, that that uh, yeah, I really like that point. It, it's difficult to demarcate these things now, especially when you know, uh, the, the lines are so blurry between everything. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's I mean I think it's especially tough for like younger people too, who like might I think like there's a certain age bracket. And I think it might be the age bracket that we're both in. We're like it's very possible that like our friends, our real life friends are our friends. And like, it's, it's a very normal traditional route. But I think for like, you know, Gen Z, um, it's like, you know, it's a little bit blurrier. It's a little bit more amorphous. Right. That, that, that's a very, that's a very interesting point because kind of like you, you know, I, I did have a childhood where there was no internet and then, you know, the internet came along and that was kind of like a, and that was a very new thing and people were getting used to it. And the internet was a very weird thing, which I feel like now it's become a lot more normalized in some sense. Like, you know, everyone uses it all the time, but it was, it was kind of a, when it was a new thing, it felt different. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like, I, you know, moving onto like the platforms, like, you know, social media um, changed the internet in a big way. Definitely. Definitely. I, I think you're absolutely right. Especially, you know, algorithms kind of ruling our life and showing us what we, we should see and things like that. It's quite, quite interesting. Um, what, what's your feeling on why, you know, it, so the internet, it, I always think of this example, you know, growing up in a small rural town, if I was, was gay, it would not, it would be very difficult for me to find a peer group. Um, but with the internet, I could find people that were like me and kind of exit so to speak, while I was, you know, growing up, um, and, and I could, in some sense, have a community. Um, it's odd to me that people, I get the sense that people are really, they feel really atomized and isolated, despite that they can find like a super unique peer group um, on the internet that they couldn't find in person, because there just aren't that many people. Um, what's your sense of, of why that is? And, and do you think people are more isolated than they used to be? Or is that just some kind of like a bias I have? I mean, yes and no. I, I think what's confusing is it's like not true for everyone, but it is true for a lot of people. Um, and it's also like, it's one of these things that is true, um, but also like, is also a tr like trendy talking point, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's hard to know, like, what's the gravity of this problem um i think for i mean i don't think it's the internet's fault i think there's a lot of things going on with like atomization i mean what one really important thing is like like i'll compare my life with my younger sisters um i have you know I have two little sisters and they they stayed in our hometown and 
um, you know, because they, they have careers where they could, per, you know, they could pursue work where we grew up, which I, I couldn't personally. So I, I had to move and they're very grounded um, in the, in a familiar community um, in, in many different, you know, across many different verticals. Um, so they have their school friends, they have their college friends, they have friends from our religious community, they have friends from our cultural community, which, you know, sometimes overlaps with the religion from our neighborhood. Uh, we, you know, we've lived on, we lived on the same street basically our, our whole lives. And there's like a, a real sense of place. So like they never, like they're not alone in the same way I'm alone. I, you know, I've lived in, um, I'm just off the top of my head. I think I've, I think I've lived in like at least six different cities since <laughs> I left my hometown. So I think, and I think like that's a very common trajectory for people. And it's not just like, oh, like the, the coastal upper middle-class person moving away for college, but also a lot of people, uh, you know, have to just move to whatever city they can find work. And I think it's like exceptionally rare to be in like my sister's case where like they both have careers that they could pursue in like, you know, a, a small town in Florida that like, isn't, you know, doesn't necessarily have like any kind of, you know, like a booming, <laughs> like a right. booming professional scene. Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, and, and just not even having that real opportunity to go back because, you know, if there's, there's no way to pay the bills, this is a very practical kind of consideration. Um, that's super interesting. Well, well, Catherine, you know, what's next for you? Like, what do you want to look into next? And, and, and what do you find exciting today and, and really compelling? Um, I, you know, I really enjoyed um, learning about like internet history and, and interviewing people. Um, I, I, I love sort of connecting these dots and, and seeing like, you know, why haven't we recorded this? Why have, or if we have, you know, where have we gotten it wrong? Um, where have we gotten it right is also like an important question to answer Definitely. and like in meeting all, you know and meeting all these people who you know are, are are willing to talk to me and like share their experiences with me um I'm, I'm continuing to work on like very long form writing about like tumblr specifically um and then after that when i when i exhaust that god who knows who knows what's next <laughs> that's great i i really like that well um Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find your work? Where should we send them? Um, they can find me at default underscore friend on Twitter. And there I, I post all of my writing like hundreds of times a day. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.